This week, the pressures facing young scientists decades ago and today. In many ways, there are perhaps more similarities than differences. It was stressful then and it's stressful now. And old virus samples confirm that HIV came early to the USA. You can step back to the late 1970s to New York City and just see directly that this was already a very extensive, mature epidemic. Plus the genes that aren't quite genes, but still work kind of like genes. This is The Nature Podcast for October the 27th, 2016. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. Often, the best evidence of the history of a particular creature comes from ancient specimens, bones, teeth, and impressions in stone. But it's not so simple when the creature you're tracking down is a virus, as Kerry discovered. Michael Warraby has been through a lot in the course of his research into the history of HIV. He's been tracing the evolution of the virus which emerged in humans, having first developed in apes. And it involves a lot of detective work. I've done work in the, in the Congo, tracking down chimpanzees uh, and collecting their urine and feces to look for AIDS-related viruses. And actually almost died. I got a bad infection in my hand. For his latest project, he had to get samples from somewhere even harder to reach. We've just gone back in time. The world became aware of HIV 35 years ago when a short article appeared in a publication called the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. It was a summary of five case reports from hospitals in Los Angeles, all young homosexual men with a type of pneumonia usually limited to patients with severely compromised immune systems. Subsequent reports from San Francisco and New York showed there were similar cases across the country. For everyone, the first awareness of HIV-AIDS were these very early cases. But we now know that this virus has deep roots. It's a virus that jumped from animals, from uh, primates that live in sub-Saharan Africa probably a hundred years ago and had been circulating in humans uh, in Central Africa. At some point, one of those viruses made it across the Atlantic. And earlier work that I was involved with suggested that it had used Haiti in the Caribbean as a sort of stepping stone before getting into the US. The earlier work that Michael is talking about by his lab at the University of Arizona and others is based on piecing together the family tree that connects modern versions of the virus and some old samples. More of these old samples would be really useful because they're a snapshot of the virus from the time rather than an extrapolation from what it looks like now. But at a time when nobody knew what HIV was, Who would have been collecting these samples? So I made contact uh, with some people who work at the New York Blood Center because I knew they had been involved back in the 1970s in work on hepatitis B virus, where they had collected blood samples from very large numbers of uh, men who have sex with men because it, it was clear at that point that they were at high risk for hep B. And... A long time ago, people had looked at some of those samples and, and, and noticed that they had a high prevalence of HIV. On the West Coast, too, there were 2,000 similar samples. From all these stored vials, eight yielded good genetic information. And only then, after the team developed a whole new technique for extracting and overlapping RNA, one tiny sequence at a time. But what we've done in this paper is recovered uh, sequences from samples taken directly from human beings in the 1970s. Uh, and recovered eight of the nine oldest uh, HIV-1 genomes anywhere. Um, And that has allowed us to to sort of, rather than making these inferences from these fancy 
evolutionary techniques, uh, just kind of go back to 1970 and say, what was happening in New York City? What was happening in San Francisco? What did the virus, was it there? And, and if so, what did it look like? The answer was, it was there, in New York, long before it got to San Francisco and the rest of California. And nobody noticed it anywhere for another decade. Previous work of Michael's had led him to this conclusion, but the evidence wasn't as compelling. And so one thing this study does, I think, is just definitively ends that debate. You can step back to the late 1970s to New York City and just see directly that this was already a very extensive, mature, decade-long epidemic. Virologist Christian Anderson applauds the group's work. I think this is an extremely good example on, you know, how we can use viral genomics, essentially, you know, sequencing viruses from patients to really try and understand what happened with outbreaks. Where did they come from? How did it sort of develop over time? And for the HIV epidemic, that's for a long time been based, you know, a lot on belief rather than actual scientific evidence. Belief rather than evidence. That idea is captured in one of the best-known stories about the origin of HIV, the identity of patient zero. In the 1980s, researchers drew up a diagram of a set of men affected by the virus. They ended up with this famous cluster diagram with patient zero positioned sort of in the middle. And in the paper, they speculate that this patient may have been the link or a link between the East Coast and West Coast patients. We can actually look at this in in a way now because we have the complete genome from the patient and there's no indication at all on the evolutionary tree that that patient was the link. He, he, his, his virus looks like a typical New York City virus, uh, not particularly closely related to the uh, West Coast ones from San Francisco. There was never a, a, a great uh, reason for thinking that he had this special role. In fact, he was first labeled as patient O in that, in that study because he was from outside of California. But some of the co-authors misinterpreted the O as, an, as a zero. The term patient zero uh, was just coined by accident. But then it's so catchy that it just sort of took hold. Christian Anderson, who reads a lot of straight-up biology papers, got a thrill out of seeing this kind of historical evidence. It does read like a detective story. You can quite clearly see it in the paper when you sort of switch from the really, you know, hardcore phylogenetic analyses into you know, really digging into the history of of the outbreak. For Anderson, this is a useful way to think about his own research into current outbreaks like Ebola and Zika. We have, you know, samples that are randomly collected. We have a very, very short, a very small percentage of all patients that we actually have sequenced. Um, And this is the case with Zika, for example, where there's a huge outbreak, but we have very, very few sequences. Warabi is looking forward to trying out the new RNA technique to solve quite a different problem and help today's patients. Some of the molecular techniques that we've developed to, to go back and get these sequences out of old, crappy samples, they're very sensitive, like they're really good at, at, at picking up on trace amounts of, uh, of the virus. And so they might be good at detecting low levels of virus in people who are on antiretroviral drugs, which is going to be important now in efforts to go for a a functional cure. Michael Warraby, who led the group at the University of Arizona, and before him, Christian Anderson at the Scripps Institute in La Jolla, California.
Still to come in the news chat, the European Space Agency's crashed Mars probe and Justin Trudeau's first year as Canada's Prime Minister. But now it's time for our favourite news from elsewhere. It's the research highlights, read by Cory Luck. A study of mice adds a whole new dimension to the common phrase, I feel your pain. Mice can feel the pain of others by smelling it. Researchers subjected mice to certain treatments that cause pain. They found that mice that never got these treatments, but were in the same room as those that did, also started to show signs of pain. Even mice in a separate room experienced this pain, just by being exposed to bedding that was previously used by animals in pain. The researchers think that mice can transfer pain to others by giving off some sort of scent that other mice can sniff out. The study was published in the journal Science Advances. The Pine Island Glacier in West Antarctica is quickly melting, making it the biggest contributor to global sea level rise out of all the glaciers in the world. Even a temporary cooling of the ocean around it a few years ago wasn't enough to stop it from shrinking. Researchers collected data on the glacier and the surrounding ocean between 2009 and 2014. They found that a 60% drop in ocean heat content between 2012 and 2013 did not slow the overall thinning of the ice sheet. The scientists conclude that a cold ocean and climate will need to last for several decades to reverse the glacier's retreat. You can learn more about the work in the journal Geophysical Research Letters. It's fair to say that the job title, Researcher, is pretty misleading. After all, a recent nature survey found that, on average, researchers spend less than half their time actually doing research. That's thanks to other demands academics face, like teaching and writing papers and grant proposals. These pressures can be especially extreme for younger researchers, who are still learning to juggle these tasks, and don't necessarily have the job stability of their older counterparts. But is it getting worse? Is academia becoming even less forgiving for its young academics? This week, Nature is running a special on young scientists. And in the magazine, you can find the stats on the plight of young scientists around the world. We wanted to find out how two academics, separated by a couple of decades, felt about their first years in science. Geoffrey Vallis is a professor, and his younger colleague Hugo Lambert is a senior lecturer, both in mathematics. I know Hugo because he partly supervised my doctorate. I spoke separately with both of them about what it's like to be a young researcher and how that's changed, or hasn't, over the years. Here we present some of their thoughts. Geoffrey Vallis, the more senior of the two, is first. In many ways there are perhaps more similarities than differences. It was stressful then and, it, uh, and it's stressful now. If I'd chosen to spend today working on the paper or maybe talking to you, because I think this is an important thing to do, then there's something else I haven't done. Perhaps there are more demands on scientists these days than there used to be. So the two primary responsibilities for someone who's a lecturer at a university are teaching and research. In a sense, I was lucky, I would say, because um, when I was at Scripps, all I did was research. I didn't have any teaching to go along with it. 
it probably was right at the beginning helpful just to do research because I could get my research career going um, without too many of the distractions. It's taken me a long time to get the balance of my activities correct and it, it just takes practice. Academics don't work nine to five. We certainly work longer hours than some people who have a regular nine to five job. And I think a big part of that is that essentially we work in a competition. So maybe Monday is a bank holiday for, for me, but it ain't a bank holiday in the US. The upside of what we have is I think that we all enjoy our jobs greatly. So um, having to work somewhat longer hours is a price that many of us will gladly pay for that. Research is measured more tightly than it ever has been before. So last year I was very happy because my group uh, and with collaborators, we published a lot of papers, so this was great. Instead, this year's work has either all gone wrong has gone badly for some reason or it's still stuck in a lengthy review process and therefore from the point of view of sort of um, demonstrable outputs I don't have anything so it can be really up and down and this year is a bit down and I have to make sure that 2017 is up. There's been a pressure to publish um, for a long time. I think if anything where it has got a little bit worse over my career is that it seems like there is now more pressure to bring in grant money. You just have to get in there and do it. So I got in there and I did it and I wrote my first grant proposal and it received very bad reviews. So there you are. When I was a younger scientist, bringing in grant money was seen just as a means to an end. Sometimes I think these days bringing in grant money is seen as an end in itself. I don't think that's a good development in science. I feel that I know how to write papers. But when it comes to grants, it's an entirely different style of writing, an entirely different style of problems. I would have to say that personally, this is the thing I find by far the most difficult in my job and at which I am the least competent. There's a large lottery aspect to it. When the funding success is down to 10%, many good proposals will not get funded. I spent a whole year working very hard on two applications which failed. So it doesn't just affect me, but it also affects everybody who links to me. These days you have to spend more time saying why the work is important to society. In the past, I think you could just uh, write a proposal and say this is good science. When I was a young scientist, there were no formal mentoring systems in place at all. It wasn't, uh, as it were, a manly thing to, to do, to, to have a mentor. I think at all stages, so for PhDs and postdocs, and even for people like me, having a good, reliable mentor will always be a really, really good idea. So, I mean, basically, what you want to have conversations with your mentor where they're saying to you, what is it that you want to do? Where do you want to get to? And then you tell them, and then they tell you, 
and they advise you on what opportunities exist and advise you the best way of taking those opportunities. So that's something that I wish I'd done more of when I was younger. You'll probably find that there's more criticism in your job than praise. (laughs) So you have to enjoy the science, um, otherwise it's not worth doing. That was Geoffrey Vallis and before him, Hugo Lambert. Both work in mathematics at the University of Exeter. There's plenty more on young scientists in this week's edition of Nature. Find it at nature.com forward slash news. Sometimes genes lose their function. The DNA is still there, but it doesn't seem to be doing anything. These are called pseudogenes. But scientists have recently discovered that certain pseudogenes are doing something after all. They call these pseudo-pseudogenes. If you're not not confused, don't worry, because Jeff Marsh didn't not call Luthier Prieto Godino to get an explanation. Luthier has been studying genes in fruit flies that look like pseudogenes, but seem to have a function. They're olfactory receptor genes that help the fly detect odours. But before we get to that, what's a pseudogene again? A pseudogene is a gene that cannot code for proteins anymore because its sequence has been disruptive. It can happen because there is a deletion of part of the sequence, for example, or it could also happen through the introduction of a premature stop codon. It's a codon that tells the ribosome that it needs to stop producing protein. Like if we imagine genes as a sentence, they are a full stop that is put too early. How widespread are they and, and, and how are they thought to come about? Pseudogenes are very, very widespread, particularly within some families of genes. For example, the olfactory receptor gene family has uh, a lot of pseudogenes. And classically, this was thought to arise from the fact that when Animals do not require certain olfactory receptor genes anymore. These mutations arise randomly. And the idea is that if a premature stop codon appears in a gene that is uh, important for the species, uh, the animal's survival, that will not propagate in the population. So because these premature stop codons run genes that are thought to not really have any bearing on how well uh, an animal does anymore. They just stick around. Once a pseudogene, always a pseudogene. And they become what some people like to call junk DNA. Exactly, yes. And typically, once a gene accumulates the first premature stop codon, it might happen that as it is not functional anymore, it might accumulate more and more mutations over time. Now let's cut to the chase. Your your team's done functional studies into one of these supposed pseudogenes in a fruit fly endemic to the Seychelles, Drosophila seychellia. And uh, when you you looked at the functioning of that gene, you got more than you were bargaining for, didn't you? We knew that this gene was a pseudogene. However, we could see that these olfactory sensory neurons, they could still respond to odours. We realised that, in fact, it's this supposedly pseudogene that is still functional. So you've discovered that this supposed pseudogene does actually have a function. How do you do that in the antenna, in the neurons of an antenna of a fruit fly? That sounds like very fiddly work. 
So actually what we do is we insert electrodes inside hair-like structures that inside they contain the olfactory sensory neurons. And then we can puff different odors and see how these neurons respond to different odors. How do you think that this gene regained its functionality or do you think it never lost it? Oh, actually, I think it probably never lost it, thanks to a mechanism that we still need to elucidate, by which particularly neurons, but in not, not in other cell types, premature stop codons can be read through. They can basically be ignored. So this premature stop codon in any other cell of the organism, it will produce indeed a non-functional gene, as we would have expected. But somehow the surprise is that in, in brain cells and in neurons, this doesn't happen. Uh, this gene was probably uh, always functional. And your team then went on the hunt for more of these pseudogenes containing these premature stop codon regions, and you found the different examples of them in different receptors in different species, and they're sort of everywhere. Yes, exactly. This was very surprising. By looking in natural populations of Drosophila, we found further examples. Basically, every example of an olfactory receptor gene with a premature stop codon that I looked at, I found that it was actually functional. On a more philosophical level, you've got these pseudogenes, right? That's a gene not thought to function as a normal gene, and then you find out that it does function as a normal gene, when does a pseudo-pseudogene just become a gene again? That's a very good question. So I think we should understand what are the rules by which uh, pseudogenes are pseudogenes or are pseudo-pseudogenes. So that's the hope. The hope is that uh, by studying more examples of these pseudo-pseudogenes, we can understand the rules of what determines whether a gene is a pseudogene or, or a pseudo-pseudogene, so that when we, from now on, when we look at the genome, we can immediately say whether a gene is a pseudogene or a functional gene, even if it has a premature stop codon. Listeners may remember the ENCODE project, um, where hundreds of scientists pored over the vast majority of the human genome, which didn't seem to code for proteins, and that seemed to suggest that actually there was less junk than we'd once thought. Do you think pseudo-pseudogenes add further nails to the coffin of the idea of junk DNA? Yes, absolutely. I think this adds even more evidence that a lot of the genome that we thought was just junk DNA is probably actually functional. It's just we haven't understood yet uh, how. That was Lucia Prieto-Godino of the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. For the full paper, head to nature.com slash nature. Finally now, it's time for the news chat. And this week, Noah Baker has been chatting with Deputy News Editor Richard Van Norden. First to Mars, and there's been a bit of a mishap recently with an ESA mission. Yes, last week the Schiaparelli lander, which was supposed to gently land on Mars, uh, test some technology and, and even do a few bits of science, instead crashed into Mars from about two to four kilometres height and may have exploded. And one of the awkward things about this is one of the bits of technology it was trying to test was landing technology. Yeah, I mean, it is very difficult to land on Mars. Um, and many missions fail, um, as our reporter Elizabeth Gibney explained on our, on our back chat episode about this. But it was, a, it was a failure. What happens now is that scientists have to work out what happened. And it's not just a case of slowly pouring over the data that they got from the lander while it was descending. 
There's actually a bit of urgency here because there is a 2020 mission which Europe and Russia are jointly planning and that would send a much bigger scientific station and rover to Mars to actually drill down into the planet to look for signs of ancient life. Obviously, that mission needs to land. OK, so this is the moment that scientists go, OK, it crashed. We know that happened. What can we learn for it? How can we stop this thing happening again? What do they do now? Well, the first thing they're doing is going to actually recreate this crash many times over. It's quite painful in computer simulations to sort of figure out, can they repeat the mistake? And look at the evidence to figure out what happened. And the early indications are it may have been some kind of computing glitch. So the lander spent six minutes descending and all went fine. Uh, and about four minutes and 41 seconds in, something went wrong. The parachute came out too early. And then these thrusters, which were supposed to kind of lift up the craft and decelerate for about 30 seconds until it was just above the ground, fired for three seconds and then turned off because the lander thought it was on the ground. The lander started to switch on its suite of instruments, which were going to record Mars's weather. But it wasn't on the ground, of course. They never took any data. And from there, it plumped into the ground at, at more than 300 kilometers an hour. So what seems to have gone wrong is some sort of software flaw. Well, if that's correct, that could actually be good news. Because although the European design computing and software and sensors are going to be used in the 2020 mission, a software glitch should be easier to fix than a fundamental problem with the landing hardware, which seems to have done all it was commanded to do, even though it was commanded to do the wrong things. What does this mean for the 2020 mission? Well, ESA seemed pretty confident. Johann Dietrich Werner, who's the director general, insists that essentially the failure will have no impact, which seems hard to believe. But maybe they're putting a brave face on things, but they seem quite confident that the 2020 mission will go as planned. And overall, um, the ExoMars mission last week, I mean, it was generally, it did generally go very well. Uh, we did get data from the lander as it fell. And the other part of the mission, which was an orbiter uh, to sniff Mars's atmosphere and try to find evidence for possible biological or geological sources of methane, that got into orbit. That will start taking data next year when it gets into the, the correct orbit. So all in all, one part went very well and the other part didn't quite work, but it looks like scientists are going to get a handle on what went wrong quite fast. OK, well, we'll look forward to seeing what the successful bit of this mission um, turns out in future months and years. And now moving on to another story, and we're going to Canada and to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who's coming up to a year in office. He's done a lot for science, or he's been lauded as doing a lot for science, and we're taking a look at how much he's really achieved. Richard, give me the lowdown. Essentially, scientists are really happy with Trudeau, except that he's really picking low-hanging fruit when it comes to science policy. So what he's done really well is he's relaxed restrictions on government scientists speaking to the press and the public, which was a real bugbear for Canadian scientists, that they could never talk to reports of the public without getting clearance on many levels. And he's given more money to scientists. He's boosted science budgets, which is great. Uh, and there were some projects that were threatened, uh, a Canadian census that social scientists desperately wanted to keep, and he's kept that. So it's all great. As science policy analyst Paul Dufour says, the dark prince has left. That's uh, referring to Trudeau's conservative predecessor, Stephen Harper. And Dufour's obviously a Trudeau fan. But many, I mean, including Dufour in Canada's science community, are saying, well, you know, we're going to reserve judgment because... This first year was kind of easy, and Trudeau said he'd do a lot more than that for science in his campaign, and he hasn't yet done it. So the challenges are really lying ahead. 
I actually reported for Nature from the Paris Climate Talks back in December last year, and Trudeau was there just after he'd been elected, and he was very outspoken about climate change. What's his climate change record since in the past year? Well, he has decided that Canada should have a price on carbon, starting at 10 Canadian dollars a tonne in 2018, 7.5 US dollars, and rising to $50 a tonne in 2022. But, I mean, that sounds good, but it's a bit style over substance, analysts are worrying, because those prices are too low to achieve what Canada's stated goal is, which is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 30% below the 2005 level by 2030. And anyway, many people see that emissions goal, which was set by its predecessor harbour as lacklustre, He also had a campaign promise to phase out subsidies for fossil fuels, and he hasn't even broached any action on that. Now, through his time in office and before, Trudeau has been very outspoken about various issues, um, one of which is that he's going to try to make politics more evidence-based when he came in. How's he been doing with that particular plan? That was one of his main campaign promises to scientists, more evidence-based decision-making. Well, he is restoring jobs in government research departments. During the Harper administration, about 1,800 jobs went. Now, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans is getting 135 scientists back, and the Professional Institute of the Public Service of Canada, which is a kind of a union that represents government workers, they want the administration to hire 1,500 extra scientists next year. So the jobs are starting to come back and there's a feeling that science is coming back into government. But many researchers want Trudeau to deliver on his key promise to install a chief science officer to keep science at the heart of government. And that position is still in the planning stage. We asked Science Minister Kirsty Duncan when that appointment would be made and she wouldn't comment. So we're still waiting for that. Um, And I talked about more money for the research councils. That's true. But there's still grumbles about how these funds are apportioned. A lot are going to very large institutions and everyday scientists and everyday labs, some say they're still struggling. So all in all, it's it's a good start, but the, the really thorny issues, he's yet to tackle. And Dufour, who, uh, who called his predecessor the Dark Prince, he says, well, everyone's willing to give the government some long string. We're in the honeymoon period, but at some point they're going to have to take some actual action. And finally, from one politician who's making a lot of promises about science to a scientist who's making some promises about politicians, this is a Twitter account called At Scientist Trump. Tell me more about that. This is a brilliant parody, fictional Twitter account, Donald Trump PhD, who does the biggest, best science anywhere in the world. And we interviewed the ecologist behind the account, Emilio Bruner, at the University of Florida in Gainesville, in character, At Scientist Trump. Have you got any quotes you can give me from that interview? Right, yeah. As president, what will that scientist Trump do to make science great again? First thing I'm going to do, he says, is build a huge paywall around open access journals and make PLOS pay for it. And then we're going to publish lots of papers because of all the grants I've created. People are going to get tired of how many papers they have. Only I can do this. I have a very rich lab and I have a huge H factor. Excellent. I'm glad you didn't attempt the, the Trump voice. To read at Scientist Trump's full interview, as well as those other stories we've been discussing, head over to nature.com forward slash news. That's all for this week. But if you've not heard quite enough from us, be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at Nature Podcast. And if you'd rather listen to our individual tweets, find me at Minnie Kerry. And I'm at Climate Adam. But if Twitter's not really your thing, but you'd still like to get in touch, just drop us an email, podcast at nature.com. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith.